Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. This week I am joined by poet, artist and filmmaker Imtiaz Darker. Awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry in 2014, Imtiaz has published seven collections of luminous verse. Her poems feature on the British GCSE and A-level syllabuses. Her verse is always accompanied in her collections by exquisite drawings. These are also by Imtiaz and her pictures have been exhibited in solo shows across the world, from India to Hong Kong to New York. Imtiaz lives in London, but her chosen ex Libris venue has brought us to Paris. Imtiaz, this is an incredible place, an institution, one of the most famous, if not the most famous bookshop globally. But, nevertheless, I have to ask, of all the bookshops or libraries in all the cities in all the world, why Shakespeare and Company? Well, I heard a rumour of this place as far back as the 70s, when I was still living at home in a fairly strict household in Glasgow. And I heard about this bookshop in Paris where writers could stay the whole night living among books and sleeping with poetry. And it seemed to me like an incredibly exciting idea and I dreamed of running away to this place. For me, the idea of Paris was of a place where everything was possible, where I could be anything that I imagined myself to be. And of course, I had read by then Baudelaire and Verlaine and Rimbaud, and I was nostalgic for their Paris too. But the idea of this bookshop somehow crystallized for me everything that I wanted out of life because I was hungry for the kind of freedom that I imagined would be here, a place where there would be free thought and ideas without borderlines. Finally, I did run away from home, mm. but not to Paris, but to India. And in many ways, I grew up in India, and it was a magnificent, chaotic, inspiring place to be. And it was also an experience that shocked me into writing poetry. But in some quiet, secret part of my mind, this idea still persisted. And I held it there, the kind of myth of a bookshop that I didn't know. I didn't know whether it actually existed or not, or whether I'd made it up, or someone else had made it up for me. Somewhere along the way, I also saw Wim Wenders' film, Wings of Desire, haunting images of angels in black raincoats, listening to people's thoughts in a library, their thoughts and hopes and fears. And in my mind, this became linked to my mythical bookshop. Hmm. I never believed that I'd actually find it. And for years, it really was impossible because I was too poor to travel, definitely not to Paris. I did get to London, 
And I remember standing outside the offices of the Poetry Society, looking at its closed doors, thinking this must be where poetry lives. But I couldn't get in. So just imagine the difference when finally I did go to Paris in the late 80s. And I was walking by the Seine one evening, and just off the road, there was this shop bursting with books and golden lights spilling across the pavement and all kinds of people around it buzzing like bees around honey and I was pulled in along with them. It was only when I began to walk into the shop and up the stairs and into the library that I began to realise that this was the place of my dreams and I then put a name to it, Shakespeare and Company. It was like walking into the face of someone I knew, a person I'd wanted all my life. There was something so familiar in the smell of it, the feeling of books breathing around me, surrounding me with their safety and attracting me to their danger. And I sat on one of the benches and I have to admit that I cried. So coming back to this place still brings that back to me and that's why I'm here today. How lovely. It's a, like a sense of home for somewhere you hadn't been before. Yes. Beautiful. Exactly. For those listeners who have not yet been here, like your younger self back in the day, how would you describe the place where we are and where we find ourselves today? Well, behind me is the Seine and Notre Dame and the whole of Paris and the hum of the city. And in front of me is the sign Shakespeare and Company. It's an old building, you can see it's old, 16th century apparently. And from the outside there's a look of things that have been added on because this whole place has grown as if it couldn't help opening its arms wider and wider to take in more and more of the people who love books in a kind of huge, generous way. So I get that feeling when I'm standing outside looking at it. It's nestled back on the road, sheltered by trees and steps dipping down, so it looks like a bit of a proscenium. There are people on the steps and at the tables on the pavement. Some are reading, some just chatting over a coffee. Founder of this iteration of Shakespeare and Company, George Whitman called it his rag and bone shop of the heart. He said, I created this bookstore like a man would write a novel, building each room like a chapter. And I like people to open the door the way they open a book, a book that leads into a magic world in their imaginations. So, without further ado, I think we should open the book and walk into this magic world of imagination. Somewhere inside, Sylvia Whitman, George's daughter, is hopefully waiting for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to meet you too. I mean, it's Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Sylvia, thank you so much for hosting us in this exquisite library within your bookshop. And I can see on the wall there portraits of your namesake, Sylvia Beach, founder of the first Shakespeare and Company. We could probably do an entire series of podcasts about this place, but could you please try to distill or boil down for listeners, a history of this place? Well, the story starts with Sylvia Beach, as you said, and she was a 
very witty, energetic, fearless American who came to Paris and decided to open a bookshop here in 1919. And as Gertrude Stein said, Paris at that time was the 20th century. It was the place to be. All roads led to Paris. And so Beecher's bookshop quickly became a sort of literary mecca, a kind of sanctuary for the great writers passing through or Anglophone writers staying in Paris at that time, as well as French writers in the area. Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Stein, Juno Barnes, H.D., as well as André Gide, Paul Valéry, Aragon. And so one of the most famous stories about Sylvie Beach is that she became the publisher of Ulysses. At the time, it was declared obscene and banned and so no one dared to publish it in its entirety but she offered to and became in 1922 the smallest of small publishers of the biggest of big books as she put it and she in 1941 had to close her bookshop during the German occupation under threat of the Nazi officers but she remained in Paris and was a very influential figure until her death in 1962. The next chapter is really with my father, who came to Paris after the Second World War as a GI. And he had been a bookseller before coming to Paris, before the war. And he discovered this amazing space here. This building is 17th century and used to be a monastery. And the ground floor was for sale. And he decided this was where he wanted to live and to sell books. And so he opened his doors in 1951. And this bookshop has been connected to the writers of the Beat Generation. William Burroughs spent a lot of time in this room researching Naked Lunch. And Allen Ginsberg uh, spent a lot of time here, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, as well as people like Anais Nin, Richard Wright, James Baldwin... Yes, there's a long, long yeah. history, but I'll stop there. It's an extraordinary just surface, touching the surface there. And you grew up here? I mean, not in the, in the library exclusively, but in the apartment above and in the shop? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit of how that was? It was mad. <laughs> it was definitely a bit mad. My dad didn't limit the number of people that he allowed to stay here. So there were some mornings we would have to step over the bodies to open the bookshop. And there were so many people sleeping that we'd forget to wake everyone up. So customers would come in and there'd still be people sleeping in certain sections. Usually it was the children's section because that at the time had the most comfortable bed. <laughs> it was a wonderful way to encounter really interesting characters from all over the world. But it was a very unusual upbringing. Yes, because uh, we walk in here and we're swept away just mm -hmm. listening to all the history, the literary heritage and the mythical magic of this place. But then as a child, you're not going to be aware of all these no. things. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, one night I went to go to bed and, and there was an old bearded man in my bed and I complained to my father and he said, but he's a brilliant poet. <laughs> As if, you know, don't complain. <laughs> it was really quite mad, but I appreciate it so much today. I think I was quite lucky to spend a bit of time away from the bookshop in my upbringing and therefore not find it, you know, banal and or irritating. I actually find it magical and a wonderful way to live. And Imtiaz, 
You were born in Pakistan. You moved quite early to Scotland. Growing up, were you surrounded by books? Maybe not bearded poets in your bed, but was it a very bookish home for you? Certainly not in the way that Sylvia's was. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe this and, and the idea that your father handed you a copy of Ulysses, a signed copy. I in a dirty be. plastic bag covered in jam. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, that's very moving. <laughs> well, I certainly wasn't handed any copies of Ulysses. There were some books in the house of Urdu poetry, but I couldn't read them because I didn't know the script. And then there was the Quran, which I read five times in Arabic by rote, not understanding a single word. But I did have to read it aloud, and we were all made to rock in time to the rhythm of it. And there was music in that that I think had a power beyond just the meaning of the words. It was, in a way, a kind of meditation. But poetry was part of everyday life for my parents. They'd recite lines from memory, and it was thrown into the daily conversation. It was part of daily life. So they passed on the poetry to me, but it was more of an oral poetry. And the film songs and the songs they played were all from poems. And there was Hafiz, like the quote from Hafiz on the stairs as you, we came up here to the library. And there would be Ghalib and Fez. But then early on, there weren't books in the house so much as I discovered books in the Pollock Shields Public Library. And I devoured those. I'd start at one end of a shelf and not stop till I'd reached the end of the shelf. Was there a moment when you knew that this was something that you wanted to do, dreamed of doing in terms of writing poetry? I don't think I'd have articulated it like that at that time. All I was doing was putting a pen or a pencil on paper. But when I did that, when I wrote the words or made a line of a drawing, I knew that I was completely free and that that space belonged to me and that no one else could tell me what to do with it. So in a way, it was like walking into this bookshop. It was my space. I wasn't allowed to go out very much and my heart actually ached with the longing to travel. So when I saw a plane take off, it was like a terrible hurt for me. But in some ways, I think that being constrained, confined to a room with myself, made me find other ways to be free. And books were the way to do that, to find a way out to the world and to invite the whole world back in. The poems are a way of coming back to the room for me with all the world in my hands and go back to the child that I was and say, here, this was what you wanted, take it and enjoy it. There's that lovely Nietzsche quote that we only attain true maturity as an artist once we regain the seriousness of the child at play. Yes, I think children really do see play as work. They treat it as the job that they are doing. It is an intense, earnest attitude to play. And your poetry is very, I have to say, does sort of have open arms. It's a very kind voice, for me at least, when I read it. And I understand, just as George's, your father's famous mantra was, be not inhospitable to strangers, lest they be angels in disguise. And your shop is very welcoming. I understand, Imtiaz, your home, in a different way, also had a similar philosophy. Your mother. Can you talk a bit about that? And Barkat? The house that I grew up in was a little like this bookshop. It was always open to people who came from outside. I think there was always that idea that the guest is an honoured person. 
and that the guest is given the best. And I found that even in India when I went there, working in the slums, there would be people in the slum, they'd have nothing, they'd be so poor, but the guest would be given the everything that they had, offered the food. That attitude is one of generosity and openness and of having enough. There is enough in this world. The idea that it's not that we don't have enough, but if we share, there will be enough. One of the other founding ethos here at the bookshop is give what you can, take what you need. Yeah, And that's so much like Gandhi's quote, which is, there is enough in this world for man's need, but not for his greed. Barkat. If by chance you wake and find on your pillow jasmine blossoms cold with dew, you will know that you are loved. The bud is the knot where everything begins, someone having gone in the dawn to gather the flowers for you, the petals of songs your grandmother sings. Soja chanda soja, Miri Raj Dulari Soja. You may have nothing but a large heart and just enough food on the table for a guest, but the best of conversations are garlands in your clever hands, strung through with poetry. Tuje Nindia Satai Soja, Soja Chanda Soja. This song is an untied knot. It will not lie idle on the pillow or hide in the bed, but will run out on the street and when the traffic lights turn red, stand at your car window with bare feet, saying, take this, take it. I made it for you. Sylvia, there's also that lovely quote from your father about this shop itself being a book and opening up chapters and pages. And it still feels very much like a, an imaginary world when you're walking in. Would you say your philosophy is still very much along those lines in terms of this place, housing, emotions, and these books that you grew up around, are your family and friends as well? Yeah, George always said that he never wrote a novel, but every corner of this bookshop was a chapter from his unwritten novel. And I think you do sense that personality and that personal sort of spirit that's in every corner. I also love the fact that he used to say everyone in this bookshop are fictitious characters, so leave your everyday self outside the door. And the idea is that you come into the bookshop and you enter the space as you would enter your imagination. I hope that we've still retained that spirit. And that is something that I feel on an everyday level, that there's something very magnetic and imaginative about the space. Not only the physicality of books and the beautiful design of books that are lining the walls from floor to ceiling, but also that a bookshop is somewhere that you can be alone together. It's that wonderful combination of solitude and gathering. That is something that we sort of want to encourage here and also I suppose making it somewhere that people do and children especially come in and feel a sense of magic and get some kind of excitement by finding one of the animals in the bookshop or the piano they get really excited about typewriters (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame them I love typewriters (laughs) so yeah definitely that's very important 
to me to keep that. But I think also this the presence of the tumbleweeds really is the heart of the bookshop. And in terms of feeling connected and there's just something else going on in the space. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the tumbleweed tradition and how it lives on today? Because here we are during the daytime, but this place has another sort of imaginary otherworldliness at night takes on a whole new life of its own and just that that tradition and how it's still going as well yeah so george spent a lot of his youth traveling he left boston with 40 dollars in his pocket and went to mexico city and then traveled extensively in south america and was really struck by the hospitality that he received and so he felt that it was just natural to return that And when he opened the bookshop, on the very first day that he opened, he invited a couple from Australia to sleep in the bookshop. And he, in exchange for a bed, he he asked, and we still ask, for people to write a one-page story of their life, to help us for two hours a day and to read a book a day. As I said earlier, there's a sense of borrowed time. It's this very unusual experience for people. It's not really how they would usually spend their time, but here they are able to spend their time just reading or talking about books and sharing a glass of wine. And so that tradition has continued amazingly because I suppose it really seems like quite a hippie idea, but it's actually become probably the most important part of the bookshop to me this sense of being open to strangers when we're not very open to strangers in society these days. The incredible effect that that has, that just quite a small thing on our side, and people are so amazed by it. I mean, I have letters in the archives of people who said they came into the bookshop, this is in the 70s or 80s, planning to steal a book, and then... George saw them and said, oh, could you mind the till for an hour? I've got to get out to the supermarket and you can sleep here tonight. Here are my keys. <laughs> and so obviously they didn't steal the book and they ended up having a, an incredible experience. So I think now we've maybe housed over 40,000 wow. people. When you think about it, that must have changed so many lives. I think in a small way, you know, even if it's it meant they encountered a certain book or an author... Oh, as I said, a lot of people fell in love here. And a lot of people have retained friendships that they made here over many years in their life. So I think it does affect them. And even just having that permission, that, as you said, borrowed time, that time that's kept just for this must have changed the way they looked at time and writing and their own permission. Exactly, and often a lot of them are aspiring writers and looking at where their next path they'll take in life. So this is actually a real necessity for them, is to be in this kind of a bubble for a moment to reflect on things that they might not be able to in their everyday life. I was wondering about the people who spend the night here. Do you think they ever see the ghosts of the past writers or the past tumbleweeds here? Apparently they do. Okay. <laughs> Apparently in the Dostoevsky section there's someone <laughs> who appears regularly. I've heard a few stories of sightings. <laughs> I should add we're sat on one of these beds and it feels very comfortable. Oh, very very cushy. We, we have changed them since the 50s. So. <laughs> and Imtiaz... In terms of night and in terms of creating a space in which to imagine and inhabit your sensibilities as and consciousness as a writer, which this 
place does so beautifully and in such an inspirational way. You have quite an unusual process, it could be said. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you go about finding that liminal, important, poetic space for your work? Well, first of all, I walk about. I mean, I walk and I find that the rhythm of walking unleashes something, that kind of rhythm that sets a poem in motion. And then I sit around at cafes and stations and all kinds of public spaces, lying in wait for a poem, lying in wait for those conversations and half-conversations that people have that can kind of set off, trigger a poem. And then I write on A4 sheets of paper. And it's A4 because I never really know if the line that I'm writing is going to become a poem or a drawing. But it's only when I take all those pieces of paper home, and they might be little bits of paper napkins and backs of tickets that I've jotted things down on. And it's only when I take it home that I'm able to give it shape. And very often I can start a line, say at 11 in the night, and find that I've been working on that line and it's four in the morning before I know it. There's that moment just before dawn when time seems to stand still, where it holds its breath. And that's a moment that I find, it's as if the writing falls into that space, as if it's a space where writing is allowed to happen. I think a, a poem in many ways is a way of playing games with time. It's like leaving a signature on time. The line in the poem has to do with how the poem moves in time and it goes on a kind of a walk or a dance. So in that moment, I'm in some ways mirroring what's happened during the day. But in that stillness of time, letting the poem walk in a different way, it has feet and it can get into a stride of its own and you recognise the music when it happens. The white at the end of the line is like the silence in the night. It's where time stops and takes a breath and decides to either turn the next corner or move on to the next line or the next verse. Heavenly Emporium He takes the pieces of china home and places them together, not to recreate the thing they were, but to make a shape wiser than a cup or plate, the broken edges uncontained and patient enough to lie in wait for the tide to turn, for the full moon. How do you know then when a poem that does turn the corner is going to last the distance? I never know. I never know if the poem is right. I never feel it's finished. You ask any publisher, I'd still be changing lines after I've sent it off. I sometimes change lines after the poem is published. I sometimes read a different thing from what I've actually published. So I feel as if a poem is something that in my mind never really ends. And you mentioned when you read a poem, can we discuss Poetry Live, started by your late husband, Simon Powell. And I, I think that's how you met Simon. How important is it today to you also that poetry be read aloud? Well, over 25 years ago, Simon had this brilliant and beautiful and completely mad idea that young people shouldn't just read poetry off a page, but hear it spoken by poets, the poets who write it. 
and that he could take this out to thousands of young people through the year. So what they hear is the voice and the breath and the accent, the odd accents very often of the poets themselves. And as much as anything else, they see that the poets are real living people who look much like them, who have lives much like them, who are talking about quite recognisable things, doing this in a language that they understand instead of just seeing it on a page. But what happens then is that, yes, they listen. They come in rowdy and just happy to get a day off school. But when the poem is being read, they're listening in pin-drop silence. And what we find is that then when they go back to the page, and we hope they go back to the page, this is the purpose. It's a door into the page, the reading aloud, that when they go back to the page, they're seeing the poem in a different way and hearing it in a different way, and they have a better way into it. And that was really the idea of Poetry Live. So seven poets travel around the country reading to these thousands. It's 25,000 students a year. Wow. Caroline Duffy and Simon Armitage and John Agard, Gillian Clark, me, Daljeet Nagra, and some guest poets. But it doesn't really matter who they are. They're breathing, living people. And this is what the students are seeing. It's phenomenal. And Sylvia, obviously your shop has a very lively program of events. But in terms of poetry specifically, as we're with Imtiaz, how do you think of poetry's significance within the shop? I don't know, Imtiaz, if you feel the same, but I'm sensing a sort of resurgence of poetry at the moment. And we recently expanded our poetry section, not because we sensed an increase of demand at the time, but it was a very important section for us. And thinking of our sister bookshop, City Lights, who has this amazing room just of poetry, we, we wanted to go in that direction. And so we just opened this poetry room up and we were so happy to see the success and the, like, bees to honey. And I don't know whether it's because of the unsettling times that we're living in. You know, you think of a line like the T.S. Eliot one, this is one moment, but know that another shall pierce you with a sudden painful joy. Whether, you know, at these times people want something direct that goes straight to your heart, or is it social media, and this is a really good form for social media. I mean, there's a lot of Instagram poets that, you know, people have been coming in asking for their works. I don't know what it is, but it's so heartening yes. as a bookseller to see this resurgence. Do you feel that? Yes, I agree with this. I think it's, it's especially in a time when there's so much white noise. There's so much chaos and unnecessary noise that when they find that still moment of poetry, they respond to it. And also it's a shared experience in a time when church is a different kind of a place it's not where people are getting the same kind of perhaps shared experience at least this is a kind of secular experience where people share something that lifts them up and takes them out of themselves and I think young people especially are responding to this because poetry is speaking in a language that goes beyond the meaning of the words it says things that the heart knows before the mind has a chance to catch up and they recognise this. Yes, it's the, like the Pope line, what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed. Mm. Some of our most memorable events have been poetry. Readers get a lot out of hearing the poet's voice, out of hearing the music of it, the tone. And sometimes we do actually have accompanying music with it sometimes. Recently we had Kate Tempest, Saul Williams, Scarlett Sabbath, Selena Godden... 
And like you said, a pin drop. People were utterly captivated. Yes, I wonder if it was the same when Ginsburg was here in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, I mean, one of the most extraordinary events that happened here was in 1958, Ginsburg gave a reading with Corso and someone was reading before them and Corso <laughs> shouted, this is not real poetry. And when he was asked, what's real poetry? He stripped naked, stood up, read his poems... And he had two friends who acted like bodyguards, two big bearded men who threatened to beat anyone up if they left during the recital. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ginsburg followed naked. And then that was actually when William Burroughs gave his first public reading of Naked Lunch. Wow. And George said, no one knew whether to laugh or be sick. <laughs> Well, I think that's an interesting point as well, because it raises the question of what is real poetry. And I think nowadays the idea of what is real poetry is wider and wider. And that's actually exciting times. I find these very exciting times because the idea of poetry is bigger and bigger now. Imtiaz, you talked about poetry in, in the context of time. And you've said, I believe, that there's this capability for poetry to loop time. In the context of Simon and Poetry Live... Is it fair to say that poetry brought you together and it continues to enable you to live together with him, even though he's no longer with us? Yes, I think that's absolutely true, because poetry has this whole feeling of presence in absence, the ability to use memory and time, to keep time, in a way, keeping time. I mean, it's like dance, in a way. I have this poem called Tal, where I was thinking of the beat Tal is a Sanskrit word for beat. So I was thinking of the beat that's used to accompany a Kathak dancer. If you drew a diagram of what the dancer's feet do, it's a moving outward from a point and coming back to a kind of central point. And for me, that's like the whole idea of keeping time changes the idea of time. It's almost as if the timeline loops and as if time can coexist, past and present. And I feel in many ways that's what I'm doing with the idea of keeping Simon as well, keeping the person, the person who's absent, but keeping them present and alive. It changes the idea of loss and lost time. And between the line, between the beats, is the kali, the empty space, the sideways swipe of the hand, which is the absence, which is also very much part of the line itself, the presence. Mm. It's the, the silence. The between. silence between the lines. And Sylvia, similarly, your father lives on so abundantly in this shop and memory is a constantly a provisional act. Memory lives in the present and the books have characters of their own and as we've said, they're sort of like old friends and must feel like family. But this place itself feels like a time warp in that you walk in and you're in a sort of another dimension. But again, for you, on a personal level, you know, he's still here. That must be quite comforting. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I was hesitating because it's so true, but I, to try and give you an example of, yes. uh, of that is difficult. But just in what I said earlier about him feeling like he had every corner was a chapter from his unwritten novel, you do feel not only his sort of aesthetic in the shop, but he always wanted gaps between the shelves so that one reader could exchange a glance with another reader on the other side. Mm. It's very romantic. But then also with his, I suppose, his values of life with the citations around the bookshop Live for Humanity, painted on a step going into the fiction room. 
I feel that not only in the way the bookshop looks, but also in the values the that the bookshop is founded on. Mm. That I hope we are continuing today. Absolutely. <laughs> The trick. In a wasted time, it's only when I sleep that all my senses come awake. In the wake of you, let day not break. Let me keep the scent, the weight, the bright of you. Take the countless hours and count them all night through, till that time comes when you come to the door of dreams, carrying oranges that cast a glow up into your face. Greedy for more than the gift of seeing you, I lean in to taste the colour, kiss it off your offered mouth. For this, for this, I fall asleep in haste, willing to fall for the trick that tells the truth, that even your shade makes darkest absence bright, that shadows live wherever there is light. And Imtiaz, you've moved around a lot. We talked about George arriving here in Paris. Mumbai, Glasgow, Wales, London, etc. Carol Ann Duffy has said that you would be the only candidate for World Laureate if such a post were to exist, which I completely agree with. And you've also said yourself that you, in one of your poems you don't fit and that you feel... I'm grabbing from your poem, but in verse you've said, I don't fit like a clumsily translated poem, but this sense of displacement, dislocation, being on the edge of things. And you've also called yourself a cultural mongrel. This is all very positive, though, and this is a sort of lifeblood of your work, isn't it? Yes, I've always felt as if I've, I'm hanging on by my fingernails, kind of half understanding things and half holding on and just about to fall off. But in a way, I think that's quite good for a writer to not to be comfortable, not to feel that you are safe in one place. Even the idea of home in many ways. What is home? Home is changing constantly. Even for an exile or a refugee or someone who's emigrated, they may have an idea of home which feels like a safe place, but actually home is gone behind their backs. All of that has changed. And Gertrude Stein again, she said, what good are roots unless you can take them with you? Mm -hmm. So for me, home has always been the places where I find other writers, the conversation. My relatives are ancestors in books. And that's why, in many ways, coming to a place like this is coming back to this huge family that I discover and rediscover another relative I didn't know I had. And that's what a place like this does, the randomness of it, the fact that you have safe places for a moment without knowing it, that you can walk into a dangerous area too, because that's what books are as well. They're not about safety, they're about pushing you into dangerous ground as well. But that's what every place is. Nowhere is ever safe anymore. You don't want it really to be just safe. It has all kinds of traps and tripwires. Nothing in our lives is just one thing. And for me, this bookshop, especially, as I said, it was a myth in my mind. It was a, a thing I thought I had dreamed up. And then to come back and find it, here with all my unknown relatives was a great moment. We just put a quote by James Baldwin in the window and I can't remember the exact quote, but the sense is, you think you're in pain and lonely and then you read. 
or these writers are essentially grasping with what it is to be human. And so to read and to get someone else's perspective yeah. is really... Yes, it's the idea from him that what you're going through is the only time, the first time anyone's felt like this, and then you read. Yes. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think home, for me, as a construct, only really exists as a child when you're, we're children. Going back to what we were talking about in terms of your childhood homes, and then it becomes quite quickly a state of mind. And for you, MTS, even though you'd never been here, the way you talked about this place very much did feel like home for you. Yes, I, I did recognise, first of all, in the philosophy of the place and in everything I saw when I walked into it, I recognised that openness and that generosity which is what you wish for from home. I have to ask also, although we've talked about displacement being so key to your sensibilities, you're also very sharpened about topography and geography and it's very important for your process as you were saying, you walk a lot. What about the topography or geography, the location of this shop? Have you been led here in that way coming home because of its geography and the fault lines underneath this store? Well, yes, of course. Paris, as I said before, the idea of Paris and the idea of this shop is actually sitting on kilometre zero, which is the beginning of all roads in France. And if you look at it the other way, the end of all roads in France. So that seems to me such a beautiful circular image for all of what we are doing which is journeying outward and the possibility of back again but it is kilometer zero the dark heart <laughs> of nothing <laughs> I mean I, I see that as what's happening all the time the outward and the coming back I have to ask Sylvia also Shakespeare and Company is in itself a landmark but we're opposite Notre Dame and Notre Dame is a husk of its former self in some ways today. It's a sobering sight for us tourists to your city. How, if you don't mind me asking, what was that day like? And for you as well, where there is such a strong link with this place and that place, what was that day like for you? Um, well, on the day we received lots of messages from writers and friends, and the only way I could describe it in the day itself was that it was like watching the moon in the sky split in two. And I realized this building somehow seemed immovable for me, even though there's been, you know, cathedrals have gone up in flames and over centuries in many different areas of France and around the world, but somehow it seemed impossible that anything could change about this building apart from the daily reflection of light. Every day it had this different kind of light that the cathedral would give off. So it was utterly shocking to witness that. But almost it still feels like just a sort of very horrible nightmare, like it somehow was not real. I mean, we were very fortunate, I think. We, it turns out we were about 15 minutes away from losing one of the towers, so we are actually really lucky. Yes, no one died. I, I say a husk, but yeah. it, it's still very much there, thank yeah, God. exactly, and no one died, there were no fatalities. And now, in the aftermath, there's just been this sort of sense of sadness looking at the building, but also the whole parvis in front of the Notre Dame is closed, and so it's changed quite dramatically the area around it. There's a lot of tourists who would normally spend time on Kilometre Zero in front of Notre Dame, but therefore being sort of pushed to the side. So it's changed the, the area. But also there's been this controversy about the amount of money that was raised 
during the whole Gilets Jaunes movement, it seemed quite questionable that that much money appeared for this. And then now that that money actually hasn't been given over. So, so it's quite a sad aftermath. I don't know what direction it will go in, but I do hope there will be a quick reconstruction because it definitely feels like a sort of ill-lost friend at the moment. Yes. And there was a fairly major fire at the shop, am I right, in, in, in around 1990? There was, yes. It was in this library. And in the midst of the fire, George came in and threw out his most precious books because a lot of the library came from Simone de Beauvoir's English language library, Mavis Galant's, Sylvia Beecher's. So they were very precious to him. But in a very George-like way, the next day he reopened said don't mourn let's get back to business let's organize so it was quite dramatic but he kept going <laughs> the shop is often full of tourists and all manner of people browsers etc how do you reconcile its position as a landmark with that sort of cachet for visitors to paris with also the day-to-day functionality etc and role key role as a local thriving bookstore This is something I think about every single day. It is a real challenge. It's at once we're incredibly lucky to be a sort of destination for people around the world and even a destination for people who wouldn't normally go to a bookshop. So it's a fantastic opportunity to showcase writers, books, publishers that we care about and to meet people from around the world. On the other side, it's a real priority for us to remain a local bookshop that is a nice and welcoming place for local readers and writers and also a place where you can be comfortable browsing for hours because isn't that, you know, one of the joys of being in an independent bookshop is that you're not pressured into buying something. And this library, in fact, is the whole of the first floor is not commercial. So the idea is that it is a space that people can come and sit and meet and read for 12 hours a day. I love um, the fact that you have a library in the bookshop and always have, and it started, started with Sylvia and, I believe, George, predominantly as a lending library. Yes, I think Sylvia Beach was much more organised than <laughs> us, and she actually you know, had lending cards, and she really lent the, the books out. Ours are, are really just at people's disposal to pick up and read, but we don't encourage them to take them no, no. <laughs> with them, although I'm sure some people do. I mean, it's a really important part of the bookshop and encourages this sense of this being a space that's not primarily commercial. And I know George, it was one of the most important things to him, and he felt that he was sort of following in the footsteps of Sylvia Beach and creating a, a place that was more of a lending library than a commercial space. And, I mean, he would indeed be quite irritated sometimes when people wanted to buy a book. (laughs) How dare they? They're going to take it away. Oh, no. (laughs) Exactly. Why don't you just stay here and read it? (laughs) Do you have people now who come and sit here and work on a whole manuscript? Yeah, we do. There's one man, actually. I haven't dared ask him what he's working on, but I've seen him every day for the last six months working here in one corner or another. It's interesting that you would let him, as it should be, but you would let him work here for six months without knowing what yeah. he's working on. Yes. It's extraordinary. I know. Maybe one day he'll, he'll just turn up with a bound book. or <laughs> Yes, you'll find an acknowledgement yes. in some wonderful book. <laughs> that would be nice. 
And so you've made this place your own. This is the new chapter of Shakespeare and Company, and you've so elegantly brought it into the 21st century. But where do you think the place is going? And moreover, with a lot of closures, etc., independent bookshops, do you have any views on the landscape? Obviously, this place is exceptional, but there are the same challenges apply, I'm sure, in many ways. And also, do you have other bookshops you like? So many, uh, yeah. I want to do a world. I today, want to do a world would, journey, yeah. visiting all the bookshops I want to visit around the world. Because, gosh, there's so many and in extraordinary spaces, like a bookshop in a theatre, a bookshop in a cathedral, a bookshop in a boat. And like you, I feel instantly at home when I go into a bookshop. It's amazing. It's as, as if there's a kind of unspoken community. We're all connected. Obviously, I'm thinking also the digital age and how people are consuming and buying yeah. things increasingly, books well, included. We have almost tripled in size and business in the last few years, and that's quite extraordinary. And it's made me think a lot about what direction, but also about the responsibility that goes with that. I've been trying to read a lot of books by Rebecca Solnit or Hope in the Dark or... Utopia for Realists or Poetry for the Future. They're books that are very informative about the reality of today and yet not scaremongering. And so there's a sense of hope, which for me anyway, makes me feel active rather than <laughs> just go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's two ways that we're doing that. And one is being able to present both through book displays, but also through events, those books that we really care about and that we think are important for people to read. And we just put up a um, quote by Rebecca Solnit downstairs that says, inside the word emergency is emerge. From an emergency, new things come forth. And I think the other way that we're doing that is to work with associations like Médecins Sans Frontières, who are doing a lot for refugees, Room to Read, who create libraries in places that people don't have access to libraries, and Arts Emergency, who put people in touch with us who are not from the literary world, they have no contacts, they want to break into that world, but they aren't the daughter of or the son of. Another way that we're trying to do things is like initiating composting in our cafe, which, you know, obviously cafes create a lot of waste. So this is something that we're really concerned about. And Paris doesn't offer a service of composting like they do, I think, in mm. London. So we have found a private company that do that. So it's basically just trying to kind of have all the exciting part of expanding. And we feel we need to expand because we want to be a comfortable space for the number of visitors that are visiting. Yes. But also we just greedy for more space to put more books. But also doing that in a mindful way, both for our visitors, but also for those that work at the bookshop. Again, I think that's something that young people would appreciate. The fact that whatever you're doing here is with a sense of taking care yes. of what we have, of the riches we have around us as well. Yeah, mm. I just think we have to. It's not, mm. you know, the resources aren't endless. And I don't want to just be adding to that waste. And because we've grown so much, the team has grown. So we now have 50 people working here and I want to feel that people are happy coming to work and that it's a fair environment for them and an interesting environment and trying to keep it with the original ethos yes. at the size that it has become. 
And in general, independent bookshops, I mean, bookshops are revered in France. It's a wonderful country for to exist as an independent bookshop. The river is lined with bouquinistes. There are hundreds, if not a thousand, or just over a thousand independent bookshops in Paris. I don't know if you noticed last month, the French Parliament passed a law requesting the, it's called the GAFA tax. And so GAFA being an acronym for Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and that those companies have to pay 3% fee on their total revenue that they make in France. It's so inspiring. I'm so proud that yeah. this is a country yes. that's taking action. Just to re-establish the fiscal justice is just bringing the, the fiscal system into the 21st century. There's no reason why one of these huge corporations shouldn't pay the same tax that anyone else with an economic activity in France is paying. That is really wonderful, and but also I think one of the reasons why independent bookshops are still thriving yeah, it's phenomenal yeah. and walking here today actually as a londoner i was looking on slightly enviously at all the beautiful independent bookstores and stands that we passed just in the short walk to here mitron installed a law lang's law 1981 which yes, in itself for an onlooker from britain sounded very progressive at the time that bigger booksellers couldn't undercut smaller independent stores. And this yeah. feels like a more macro, right-on, appropriate extension of that. It's and all power to France for doing it. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that Lang law is so valuable to us because it's, it means that chains can't undercut more than 5% the price of a new book. I feel that there's a lot being done to protect places like here and, and also independent cinemas have protection as well. So there's that sense of community that's retained. Maybe we should be working for this in Britain as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe this podcast can play a tiny part in this campaign. That's sort of the idea. Changing the world on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Just another day at the office. Um, so we're surrounded by these amazing bookshelves, historic fabled bookshelves. Both of you, I have to ask, I always like to ask, because... How people order their bookshelves, I think, offers a sort of snapshot of how they order their minds. And George, as I understand it, didn't always like to order the books alphabetically, which for a bookseller is, once again, extraordinary. But he preferred, I think, a more holistic approach. Is that correct? Interesting marriages. That's what he liked. I mean, we've a better way of putting it, yeah. His collection on the third floor and you have you know history of cia next to a biography of henry miller <laughs> it's well he would have known exactly where each one oh, was he knew so that's exactly. all that matters yeah. Yeah. yeah so how he thought it was a waste begs, of time begs the question sylvia how how not these shelves so much but your shelves at home i have to say they are alphabetized <laughs> but only the books that i've read are alphabetized because i you know the books that i've read i really they are friends as you said in jazz and I need to go back to them. I need to find that line for me or for a friend. And when I need to find it, I just want to find it quickly. But the books that I haven't read are in a total disaster, <laughs> piles under the bed. I mean, it's chaos. I think you're allowed at home after yeah. <laughs> the rigour of this place. And Imtiaz? I'm with George on this. I don't 
put anything in alphabetically because that wouldn't, in a lot of ways, that wouldn't make sense to me. It has to be clusters of things that go together. Like poetry would be in one section, and even in poetry, it would be po books that I think speak to each other. Mm -hmm. The books on my shelves are kind of having a constant conversation. I don't think they're ever really quiet. They're kind of shuffling and whispering to each <laughs> other all the time. <laughs> Then, of course, like you, I have the books that I haven't read yet, and Those are not even on shelves. My books have gone off the shelves. There are not enough shelves to deal with them, and some of them are stacked in clusters. And occasionally when they fall down, it's actually quite interesting because you get to look at another whole <laughs> set of things, and they have a different kind of conversation, a kind of accidental conversation. <laughs> Trying to tell you something. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both. Merci, both of you, so much for joining us. And I believe, if it's all right by you guys that now we might do a short tour, the idea being that Imtiaz, along the way, might browse the shelves, serendipitous wonder that that brings, and choose a book. That sounds like a gift. That's like good. something, yes. <laughs> Normally there's a typewriter there, mm. and it's a little nook, a writing nook there. And uh, through here, this is the piano room. Some people did a film here, and it was such a hassle to bring up the piano that they said, please, can we just leave the piano? <laughs> But now it's sort of, as you can see, it's sort of become part of the bookshelves. And there's something written on it. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> it's that, that's, Cat Aggie doesn't like the piano at oh. night. <laughs> She's very pernickety. I was wondering about the night sounds. Is it yeah. very quiet in the night, or when does it cut quieten down? I don't think when it does ever the ghost arise here? Mm. Uh, probably in yeah, probably after two or something. Okay. Yeah, no, at, at midnight it's still quite active. Yes, yes, I thought so. <laughs> With all those young people in yeah. here, yeah. so again, the hours of quietness are the hours just before dawn. You know, the thing is about this place is it, it's the books that control the space. It's not us. The books take over. This is the Mirror of Love. Yes. And uh, this is actually where we used to have poetry. So as you can see, it was quite mm. small. I before. remember this. Yeah. I remember well, before it was the children's section and then it became poetry. This is library books as well. But the Mirror of Love, it was quite difficult when, when this was a poetry section with books for sale. You'd be here shelving, and then a customer would say, excuse me, have you seen a note, a message from uh, Pierre to Emma? Oh, wow. Like, what, what book is that? <laughs> Who's the author? And they're talking about this mirror of love, which is where people leave their messages. Bon Bon and Fish Bon were here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and messages about Notre Dame, yeah. and just messages to each other. Yeah, oh. it's mainly messages to each other. I think yes. people say, I've left you a message, which is quite nice considering you can text message people yeah. so easily. The fact that they've decided to kind of go the hard way. Reassuring somehow. Yeah, there's a French author called Mathias Mazieu, and he's a singer, and he wrote, he's written a few books. And he really loves the bookshop. He was very mm. ill at some moment, and the hospital he had to go to, the bookshop was in between his home and the hospital, and he'd come on a skateboard, stop at the bookshop and kind of, you know, mm. breathe and feel inspired and then go on to the hospital. And he's told this story to a few people, and one of his fans left a letter for him oh. in one of the books here in the library. And we were having one of our kind of once-a-year 
spring cleans and the letter fell out. So I gave it to him and he received the letter three years after she hid the letter. Really so that was amazing. a nice message yeah. in a bottle. Message yeah, in a bottle, that. yeah. Maybe we'll go downstairs and, and I'll yeah. show you the some of the new spaces. We also have a little notice board for people looking for cat sitters. The um, notice board is that kind of sense of bookshops being a places to, you know, be a community, to a place of curation and a place to convene. We're standing in the new art room, yes. which we called the chapel because it had such a high ceiling. This used to be a sort of cellar. It was cut in two. A quite a mad American alcoholic artist lived in here with no electricity, no water, nothing. His bed was made out of car tires here. The only way he could get out was this way, through the blue door. And he died. This is quite a few years ago. He was kind of a real character in the quartier. And I think he would be happy to know that his old bedroom has become the art room. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got quite a different feel yes. to the rest of the bookshop, but still connected. We did the marble floor like mm. George did in the front. Mm. And, and sorry, and there's a gallery up there which yes. looks very enticing. Mm. This is for writers when they have writer's block. We yes. invite them to go up uh-huh. and then we remove the ladder. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Stay up there till you've written a hundred words. Let alone block, yeah. Need the loo? No. Have we finished the chapter? <laughs> That's just a little corner for the tumbleweeds mm. to hide. Mm. This is the new poetry room. Ah, wonderful room. I see right away. Caroline Duffy's sincerity. Are, are these yes. all the people who read? No, oh, these are just some displays. Yes. Mm. Oyster Boy, Billy yeah. Collins, and Carson. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, you know that writers do this. I know. I know. We often know what writers pass through by seeing the change in book display. <laughs> they immediately turn their front covers out. <laughs> That's a good idea. World. And this is a quote that we just put up that I love by Jeanette Winterson. Fiction and poetry and medicines, they heal the rupture reality makes on the imagination. So we also have a section for French poetry, love poetry... Beat poetry. And we were here with the typewriters. I, I was looking for them, but they're stuck on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Have you read a lot of Brian Getty? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I love his stuff. So he just turned 100. Oh. And so I've been re- this is a new collection by New Directions where they kind of brought out his sort of greatest poems. And, uh, he was a regular here, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Mm. yeah. And uh, he was furling. Yeah. They were great friends, weren't they, George? Exactly. Yeah. I made a pilgrimage to City Lights. Did you? Yeah. It's such a brilliant bookshop, isn't it? And so, I mean, I, I just love... It's really got the best selection of his poems in here. Just listen to this at the end of I Am Waiting. And I am awaiting perpetually and forever a renaissance of wonder. Oh. Mm. I feel like that's what I'm waiting that's for whenever I pick yeah. up a book. Amen. It will... <laughs> I'll give you that one. Oh, really? Yes, I was yes, going to definitely. have this as my no, choice. No, I was going to have this as, as the one I chose. No, I'd love to give that oh, one to thank you. you so much. <laughs> You'll have to sign it. Yeah, I'll stamp it. I'll stamp it with the bookshop stamp. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Ex Libris. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening app. 
That way you can keep up with the podcast. Write an especially perceptive review mentioning this episode and you stand the chance of winning signed copies of Imtiaz's latest two poetry collections, Over the Moon and Luck is the Hook. To find out more about the authors and venues, as well as more on libraries and bookshops, including loads of great images so you can put places and faces to names, please visit our website, www.exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get such updates from me on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at that Ben Holden. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine. <laughs>